when I was a little girl, very young, I would pretend to be a baby bird who had fallen from its nest. And this was the only way my parents could get me to bed, to play along and pretend that I was a little bird that they have picked up to re-nest. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. Many of my clients tell me that they're stretched too thin with too many demands upon them. They are just worn out. In my brand new webinar, I teach simple and sensible habits that will significantly improve your life now and help you age with vibrance and resilience. But it's important to start now. Don't wait until your body's distress signals go from a whisper to a scream. If you followed me at all, you know I'm not about restrictive diets or boot camps. I believe life can be challenging enough. Let's appreciate our bodies and minds for the miraculous systems they are and take the time to take care of ourselves. Self-care pays big dividends now and in the future. And being well ourselves is the only way we can help those we love. And if you sign up now, I will send you my super zestful aging checklist, which I designed so you have clear guidelines right at your fingertips. The webinar is free. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. So it's the one year anniversary of Zestful Aging and to commemorate it, I am at a place called Hope and I'm going to be interviewing Christine Cummings um, in person. She's the president and co-founder of A Place Called Hope and it's a rehab and education center in Connecticut for Birds of Prey, and their goal here is to heal injured, orphaned, or ill birds and return them to the wild where they belong. Okay. Federal permits allow them to house and work with the birds that cannot be returned to the natural world, That's it. provided that they're shared through educational presentations. And these birds have become ambassadors and have helped them educate the public on ways we can better coexist with all wildlife within our very own backyards. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's so lovely here. I just want to describe the scene you're next to. Uh, you were talking about a cranberry bog? Correct. We have a 46-acre wild cranberry bog that's actually owned by the Killingworth Land Trust. Mm -hmm. And then there is a three-acre section of that bond, uh, bog that is actually owned by uh, Keith Bishop of B Bishop's Orchards in oh, Guilford. Yes. So yes. they are producing cranberries, and this last oh. season was their first production. So every year it should get better. 
and better oh. and we get to watch the process so wow. it's a lot of fun fascinating um and I'm, I'm sure some of these questions are you know you're gonna have uh, been answered so many times but you know you're doing this is a life for you this is not just your side gig no obviously you live here this is a soul path it's a soul path yes how did you come to this path well, I'm going to say that I think I was born for this. When mm-hmm. I was a little girl, very young, I would pretend to be a baby bird who had fallen from its nest. And this was the only way my parents could get me to bed, to play along and pretend that I was a little bird that they have picked up to oh. re-nest, which is really symbolic because the, 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 the future, here we are, a place called Hope, me as an adult in my 50s. Mm-hmm. And we now do renesting projects. So one of our big things we do here at a place called Hope is put baby birds back where they belong. Mm-hmm. So it is so critical and important for birds to be raised by their own kind. Mm-hmm. In a captive environment, birds are often um, imprinted. You know, they're not supposed to be. That's when they they take a picture or snapshot photo of the caregiver at a time that's critical for them to understand their own identity. So if they imprint on the wrong caregiver, it's permanent. It's irreversible. Uh So for us, we like to see these birds be put back where they can not only imprint on their own species, Uh but where they can learn how to be wild. Uh They can't learn what they need to learn out in or in a captive environment like they would out in the real world with their own kind. So taking them in and caring for them, we do it on a real fast pace. We try to get them in when they fall from their nest, make sure they're not injured, Mm -hmm. and then we plan to put them back. And it's usually a couple days, depending on weather. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we get those babies back up there. Some of the nests are 85 feet up in the air. Mm -hmm. So it's it takes a team of people to get Mm -hmm. them back where they belong. But we're not that center that's holding on to those babies, feeding baby after baby, Mm -hmm. because those poor birds, their survivability is now decreased. I see. So the quicker... Quicker you're um, getting them back where they need to be. Yes. Is it's really your goal is to get them back where they belong. Exactly. Back, back with their kind. Exactly. You know, I can imagine, we talked a little bit about this earlier, that for people who love animals, there's a temptation to say, I want to adopt this beautiful yes. bird and make it my own little baby. Yes. My own little stuffed animal. Yes. And... and what do you say to people who, who, we, who we think like that? <laughs> we deal with that quite a bit in rescuing. If somebody comes across an injured bird, in particular, let's go with the owls, because the owls have those giant eyes. They blink mm. so slowly. Mm. So everything about them is very attractive. And their eyes are big, like our children's eyes are big. Mm. So people tend to want to coddle them and hold them and touch them and kiss them and pet them, which is all fine for human species. But for any wild animal, it's terrifying. So one of our goals in education is to let people understand that, that these birds are not domesticated. They don't view our effect affection the same way. So they look at that as a possible threat. And most of the time when a bird is slowly blinking and it's um, been picked up off the side of the road, it's in a state of shock. Mm -hmm. And to be handled and pet and kissed and and hugged and all of these it's things. It's not a cuddly Exactly. Thing. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying to that animal. And it could push them over the 
edge. It could push them the wrong direction. So of course, people are trying to do what they think is right when they're rescuing. So as soon as we get the call, we ask them to make sure that the bird is dark and quiet in a box. Somehow it's covered where it's not being exposed to all the noises of us humans, the children touching and photographs and all of those things, because that's damaging to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, hard to express that to a lot of people who are pretty sure that they are special and this bird loves them. <laughs> we see that quite a bit too. And it's, um, it's a battle. But people need to understand that it's just not in their design. These birds have what we like to describe as ancient wisdom. They think about one thing at a time, so they're not multitasking. Mm-hmm. If a human is coming in at them with their hands to touch and pet them, mm-hmm. all they are thinking about is, I'm about to be eaten. I see. I might be attacked right now. It, they may become defensive. And if they're not, if they're sitting there tolerating this, then you know you've got a very sick bird. Something's wrong. I see. So yeah. you really, you know, this it's the whole anthropomorphizing, right? Yes. You're trying to educate people that birds are not like a different version of a child. Not at all. It's a different world. And if we're going to be kind and, um, and beneficial, we have to remember that we have to think, in bird language exactly. or in the bird realm. Not- we have to understand that we are predators. And to that bird, they recognize that immediately just by, based off the placement of our eyes on our faces. So what we teach the kids is eyes in front, born to hunt. So that's the eye placement facing forward. So any predator has a target area so they can look forward and target zone in on their prey. Whereas a prey animal has eyes on the side. So eyes on the side, run and hide. So it helps them have a better peripheral vision so they can watch for predators. So when a wild animal is approached by a human, it automatically should become defensive because you are a predator. They don't know if you mean harm or if you're about to eat them or if they're going to have to fight or flight. So for the most part, they're going to fly away or get away from you or stand their ground. Lots of birds of prey will stand their ground. Mm -hmm. So if we've got an injured, let's say an injured red-tailed hawk, it can't fly it can't really run or it's too tired to run, it will turn around and face the predator, whatever the threat is, put its wings out the best it can, and it will rock back onto its back and put its feet forward, which are the weapons. So in that bird's mind, that is the best way to defend itself. It can use its powerful feet to grab at whatever is threatening it. So that's a bird that's got more um, more of its wits about it, I not see. a stunned bird. Now, you know, I... Your love for these animals is obvious. Do you, how did it go? So you, when you were little, you were obsessed. Uh, a baby bird. <laughs> yes. And that was, you know, you just, Loving as them. you said, you were born for this. So how did it go? Did you then uh, get a formal education in bird biology? I actually did not. I did not. I was just always an animal lover. I was the child who would draw pictures of them. I was an artist. Mm. I would draw pictures of them. And then I discovered that um, what was on my plate was not something that I wanted to eat because they were my friends. Mm -hmm. So I became a vegetarian at a very young age. I was very, very um, sensitive to animals. And as I aged, um, one of my favorite stories with my father is I was probably about five or six years of age. 
And he was looking out the window laughing. And I approached and he picked me up and he said, just watch. There were crows dive bombing our garbage cans and they were taking the lids off the garbage cans and pulling the garbage out to eat. And my father wasn't upset by this. He wasn't disturbed by it. He wasn't annoyed at all. He was laughing and he was like, look how smart they are. And it just triggered something in me. So I always had this fascination for birds, especially the crows or the corvid family. So that's where my my passion began was with crows and ravens, I would say. And over time, I became more familiar with other birds out there. I don't consider myself a birder. I'm not out there with a camera. I'm not mm-hmm. having a log book to look mm-hmm. for birds. You don't I, do counting. I don't. I don't do any of that. Yeah. I, I am I'm so busy with what we do. And when I was in college, I went to school to become an art teacher because of the art background. Mm-hmm. And I um, always worked as an animal technician through college. Mm-hmm. So I still kept the animal thing going. Mm-hmm. When it was time to get a job and be a teacher, I couldn't do it. I wanted to still work with animals. I just mm-hmm. couldn't separate from the animal thing. Mm-hmm. So I um, actually opened up my own dog and cat grooming salon. Mm-hmm. Now, while I was doing that, I was able to take in animals that were injured because I always had. And it was then that I discovered that there are laws behind becoming a wildlife rehabilitator. Mm -hmm. Now, all my life I had been doing, well, I shouldn't say all my life, but as my adult life, my young adult life into my adult life, I had been taking care of wild animals without proper permits, which I think a lot of wildlife rehabilitators start out that way. You just have that heart. Mm -hmm. You want to help. You do what you can to Mm -hmm. help. And you get better at it. And you get better at it, of course. But one day I I realized, I was like, you know, there's got to be something more to this. There's got to be some training behind this. And of course I looked into it. Yeah, a formal system of some sort. Exactly. And here in Connecticut, of course, you must have a state license. They call it a state appointment. And then to work with birds in particular, you have to have a federal permit. So there's a lot involved. And of course, when I learned this, I was kind of blown away. (laughs) And we knew we had um, a a challenge ahead of us and we decided to take it on full force. And that's how it all started for us. And that was how long ago? That was back in 2005. We actually took a local class through a community college. They offered an adult education course mm. called Intro to Wildlife Rehabilitation. Really? It was perfect because it was a, I think there were probably four classes, two hours a a class for, you know, in four week stretch. And this particular organization that put on this class had different rehabilitators come in each class to discuss what they did. And we were just automatic with the birds. It was this bird connection from the very first moment a bird came out to be shared. We knew this is what we had to do. We, you're speaking of my husband and myself. Yes. Um, We actually, our daughter attended the class with us as well. Uh So that was kind of nice. Now she works at a nature center and our son works at a vet hospital. Uh So we're all animal people. We've always always had the animal rescue thing and the animal thing. So it kind of works out well for all of us. And of course, both the kids are adults now and they do help whenever possible. Uh-huh. Which is really nice. So you you had made mention, I think earlier, that there's it's not necessarily this cognitive like I appreciate birds and their intellect, and now I will rescue them. I mean, <laughs> you're drawn to them at a much deeper level. Absolutely. Can you, I know it's hard to put into words, but 
Do you have any words for what that connection feels like? Well, for me, um, I know that it's a calling. I know that I was destined to do this. I know this is why I met my husband, Mm. because the two of us being co-founders together, the founders of A Place Called Hope, um, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing without his part in what he does. Mm -hmm. He is a um, wildlife photographer. Ah. He's always had a fascination with birds of prey, so it kind of all fell together. Um, He's a builder and a stonemason. And his ability to provide the proper structures, his um, art in in building Mm -hmm. has really given us the opportunity to provide for these birds in a way that I don't think most rehabilitators have Mm -hmm. that kind of funding or financial ability to create because it is all out of the pocket, especially in the beginning. It's not something that is funded by the state or the government mm-hmm. to be a wildlife rehabilitator. A lot of people want to do this this soul journey and, and do it for all the right reasons, but find that they get burnt out. Mm-hmm. They don't have the proper support structure. Mm-hmm. They don't have the money to do it. They have mm-hmm. not become a nonprofit. I see. That's Is that an important? That is so critical to the process of doing what we do, mm-hmm. because without that nonprofit um, status, yeah. you don't get the same kind of donations. Oh, really? You can't apply for the grants. I see. You know, all of those things together um, really add up to helping us be successful at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the calling that I feel um, these birds, for me personally, trying to put it into words, is I I feel like I am so connected with so many of these different birds on a soul level Mm -hmm. where I feel like in dream state, I often dream that I'm flying. Mm -hmm. In dream state, I see some of the birds that I have met, that I have personally rescued. Um, I believe that they are around me. I believe when a bird crosses over, if I'm holding that bird during that that transition, Mm -hmm. I feel that bird has somehow become part of my aura. Mm -hmm. So I feel that with every year and every bird and every case, I build on this and it just makes this whole thing have more meaning. It is hard to put into words Mm -hmm. (laughs) without sounding a little bit crazy, Mm -hmm. but I um, eat, sleep and breathe all of this. This is where I belong. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't, running what we run here, we don't get to travel. We have dreams of going places. But I have to say that when it comes down to it, I don't want to be anywhere else but where I am. Mm-hmm. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm complete doing what I'm doing. I have purpose. I know that um, it's it's healing for me to heal them mm-hmm. and to return them to where they belong. Mm-hmm. It's something that I could give back to my own community and, of course, the state and the wild. Mm-hmm. And it feels right. It feels like... You're operating at a level where what you're doing is a benefit to a much wider world. It's, Some of it, it sounds like you may not even understand. Exactly. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't. I know mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's so important that we educate people so they can do their little parts because all of us together add up to the preservation of mm-hmm. this this planet and the wildlife in it. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody can do something. So, you know, not everybody can run a nonprofit like this mm-hmm. and a rescue like this. No, but you can help. 
You know, there are so many ways to help centers and people like us do what we're doing just by picking up um, an animal from an animal hospital that needs to be transferred to a rehab oh, I center. See. So to help with some of the logistics. Yes, yes, can to bring wish list items. Break, can, yeah, could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think our listeners are sort of in our age group and mm-hmm. they may have launched their kids. Yes. Their relationships may or may not be continuing with their with their partners if they're partnered up their jobs may be in some kind of transition and many of our listeners are saying okay so i know i have good years left my body's still functioning Mm -hmm. well what 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 am i capable of what What can i give back yes what's the next step what can i do to feel good to feel good to feel good well here at a place called hope we have um, a volunteer day once a week, mm-hmm. and we have all kinds of different aged people and different walks of life people mm-hmm. that come out to help us basically clean aviary structures. I see. So it is a way to get close to these birds for mm-hmm. the birders out there and mm-hmm. for any animal lover. It's a way to go into these structures to basically clean, pick up uh, whatever garbage is on the ground and mm-hmm. clean off their perches and change their waters and, and, and be alone with these birds because we're not all you know working in the same spot so it's a real I think healing thing for a lot of people to come out and just be by these birds Mm -hmm. there are small on-site projects that we do when the weather is appropriate we do fundraising events events where people can get involved with that and help you know man a table with information or stand next to the donation box or greet people as they come in Mm -hmm. there are so many things people can do Um, wish list items are on our website so a Mm -hmm. bottle of bleach goes a long way Mm -hmm. You know, Dawn dish detergent, a uh, package of stamps, mm-hmm. garbage bags, mm-hmm. bird seed. I mean, mm-hmm. it just goes on and on the things that people have in their own homes. They don't realize they can donate to their local rehabilitator. Mm-hmm. And that means that they aren't spending the money that they're raising to take care of whatever animal on those kinds of items. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really big, important thing that we we stress to our supporters. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate everything that's donated. <laughs> and, and are you mostly... Um uh, sort of known throughout the state of Connecticut or yes. is there a wider when, reach here? No, it's really it within our state. Mm-hmm. So each state has their own um, laws that go along with permitting. I see. Um, the federal government, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, will oversee our region. So it, it covers like five or six different states for our region. Okay. So it includes New York and yeah. New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, but these particular regions monitor what their federal permitted individuals are doing per state. So each state has their own state agency that you have to get your licensing through as well. Now, the state license for Connecticut, when you take that test and you become a wildlife rehabilitator, you're not legal to um, rehabilitate any animal out there. You have to then go into the next category of whatever your interests might be. What you're legal to do in the start is, I think it's um, bunny rabbits, so the wild rabbits, um, I think it's squirrels, maybe chipmunks, uh-huh. and maybe some of the invasive bird species because they are not federally protected. I so see. things like 
pigeons and or um, starlings, starlings <laughs> house sparrows, yes. those kinds of birds. However, quite honestly, I, I think that those birds still require proper knowledge and care. Mm-hmm. I think for any rehabilitator when they're first starting out, it's important to specialize, pick an animal, mm-hmm. stick to it, become an expert. Mm-hmm. Because if you take on every animal out there, first of all, you can't afford to provide for every single diet. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, um, you have to have the proper spaces for whatever said animal is. So to build for a raccoon would be entirely different than building for a bird of prey. Mm-hmm. So you need to really keep in mind what you want to focus on and there are plenty of every species of animal out there that needs help i see so there's enough to go around there's enough to go around yes is there one particular species that really is lined up with your uh birds of prey i mean that is our specialty here and you know when asked what is my favorite bird of prey it's whichever one is in hand at the moment Mm -hmm. it really is Mm -hmm. because they are all so cherished by me um, I feel honored to work with them. I feel honored to help them. Mm-hmm. I feel honored to help them cross over when it's something that needs to happen for mm-hmm. for their sake. If it's something we can't fix, if it's a species that will not thrive in a captive environment, if we know it is non-releasable and it's an adult to take it and put it into a cage is really no life. Mm. Um, we struggle with that a lot in, in any center like this. We have a lot of birds that cannot return to the wild. Mm. It is not ideal for every single one of them to live out the rest of their or remaining of their lives mm. in a captive environment. Birds are meant to fly and be free and mm. wild. Their wild nature does not tame them down where they have a relationship with us humans like our dogs or our cats do. They tolerate us. They consent to what we're asking. They work around us. But it doesn't mean that they enjoy us and love us the way that we love them. And they're not mammals. Exactly. So they're not Mm touchy-feely. That's another thing that's really important. Um, I think that because of my background working with animals as an animal technician and then starting my business as a a dog and cat groomer, I got a lot of hands-on touchy-feely with the domesticated style animals as well as some of the mammals that did come through in the beginning of my rehabilitation days. Um, It's important to know if you're that kind of person where you need to physically touch or if you're the kind of person who can do, let's say, in my case, energy work. So you are sending an energy to that animal that's that needs to be healed and you are limiting your touching because birds don't appreciate us touching them the same way. Now, there are exceptions. There are birds like um, the crows and the ravens that are captive for long term. They do become more physical. Mm -hmm. And out of the birds of prey, there is an exception also in the world of eagles. So eagles in a captive environment do become more accustomed to their handlers and do develop more of a bond. Mm -hmm. They're different because as um, youngsters, an eagle takes five years to become mature. So their baby's longer. So it may say something about their level of intelligence being different. Mm -hmm. Not entirely sure how that really pans out in the end, but they do develop an actual relationship Mm -hmm. where I can say that even we have a red-tailed or we had a red-tailed hawk that was 29 years old when she passed away. Mm -hmm. She was in captivity her entire life and she um, tolerated it as well, but it wasn't like we could go into her aviary space Mm -hmm. and put out our gloved hand and she'd fly over and say, okay, let's go do a program. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We still have to go in and we'd have to 
you know, grab her by her weaponed legs and then put her in her leash and her gear. And then she'd do great. But it wasn't like she wanted to come out with us to go do that program. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So this whole, you know, the history of um, keeping birds and and tethering birds. Falconry. Falconry. Yeah, falconry is something that's different. That's not what we do here. Mm -hmm. Falconry is... Um, a sport. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be a very necessary sport in some cultures. It still is in places like Mongolia. Um, but for around here, it's more of what we call an ego sport or sport. Okay. It's something that you do have to get proper licensing for. Yeah. It is quite a process to go through. Mm-hmm. There's apprenticeship programming that you have to go through for quite a while before you actually get your physical falconry permit. I see. Um, we do not get into falconry. No, at a I, I wouldn't it's, think so. It's a different goal. Our goal is to fix from the wild what's injured and send them back. Whereas in falconry in Connecticut... The law is um, you can't use a peregrine falcon. It has to be the red-tailed hawk. Oh, I see. So in order to get your falconry bird, you go out to another state. You must cross state line. Oh. So Connecticut folks must go to New York. New York folks might go to Connecticut. And you go and take a wild first-year red-tailed hawk. You trap it. You take it from the wild. There's nothing wrong with it. You just trap it and you bring it into your falconry training program and the bird becomes relying uh, it becomes uh, reliant on the human for food it starts to believe that it needs the human in order to get that food and it hunts with the human so the reason why in Connecticut if this particular bird should leave its handler its falconer um, it can wild back up which is very nice to know But most of the time when you've got a falconry bird, they're going out with um, jesses on anklets on their their legs. Mm -hmm. So the jesses are leather strips that hang down. So you've got a falconry bird that decides, I'm not going back to this handler. And it goes off. Now it's got these jesses hanging. And there's we've we've definitely rescued birds off of jesses before. Is that right? Yes. That's very interesting. No, I, I... Assume that you have very different goals. I was just we curious. We do. We what do. The, yeah. I have met some falconers mm-hmm. in the state of Connecticut that I thought if I had to be a falconry bird, I mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind belonging to this particular mm-hmm. person <laughs> because they do cherish their one bird, mm-hmm. their two birds possibly. They take good care of them, mm-hmm. but is it necessary? That's where my problem comes mm-hmm. in. I don't feel that it's a necessary thing. I think mm-hmm. that it is something that we could do without. I see. And the birds would be fine being in the in the wild. Those I birds see. didn't need to be taken. I see. Yeah. I see. You talked about energy work. Are you a Reiki yes. person? Yes. Yeah. I, I did many years ago, probably it was 2005, that I did get into um, learning how to become a Reiki master. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, I, I can't say that I practice it the same way. Mm-hmm. I do my own style of working with these birds. Mm-hmm. The reason I got into it, though, was because it was energy work and it was, you don't have to have hands on. So it felt right for what we are doing here mm-hmm. to be able to feel and give an energetic um, healing, mm-hmm. more or less, distant or hands close by. And I felt and I still do feel that um, I naturally do it within my daily routine with a lot of the birds. It calms me and it calms them. So you might go in and your intention is to have a particular kind of energy yes. 
around you yes so that they can read so they can be calm as well you're, it's it's like you're communicating non-verbally correct in a different language absolutely is that, is that these birds right. see in the ultraviolet light spectrum okay um for your listeners who may have pet parrots let's say parrots see in the ultraviolet light spectrum as mm-hmm. well and they can get really excited over certain people especially people that come in with scattered energy there's more that they're seeing around the person so they can get really animated and get really kind of hyped up. And sometimes they even will bite because they get so stimulated. Yes, yes. So they're seeing things that we are not seeing. So these birds are the same way. So for me personally, like before I go on a rescue, for instance, if I have a picture of the bird, and nowadays with smartphones, it's fantastic. Mm. People will send us picture. This is what I'm seeing, and we can kind of determine what might be going on, what the injury might be. Mm-hmm. But let's say I'm on, I'm en route to go and get this particular bird. The mm-hmm. bird's not contained. It's let's just pretend it's got a broken wing and it's in a field. Mm-hmm. So I've got an image of that bird. So as I drive, I drive with no music, and I just think about that bird, and I try to let it know before I get there who I am. Mm-hmm what my intention is, Mm -hmm. what I plan on doing, Mm -hmm. and how I mean them no harm. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I have been so successful in just going out and literally just almost picking up a bird. I had a swan last winter um, that was on the ice on the Connecticut River, couldn't fly, something was wrong with him. People went out to try to get him. He'd go out to the 15, 20 feet in on the ice and no one could go because the center of the river was still flowing. Uh So you couldn't walk on the ice to get this swan. Mm -hmm. Got a picture of him. I did exactly that. When I got out of my car and walked over to the edge of the, the Connecticut River, he saw me and our eyes met and he directly walked up to me. I had food in my hand. Mm -hmm. Which everyone tried as well with food. He didn't care. I put the food down. He started eating. I told him what I was going to do. I said, I'm going to pick you up and put you in my vehicle. In words you told him? I did. In words at this point. But I had done all of this before I got there. I I let him know what I was and who I was. It was when he looked at me and our eyes met, Mm -hmm. there was a recognition. I swear there was a recognition. And this swan walked right up to me, ate the food at my feet. I literally just scooped him up put him in the back of my car. He stayed the entire winter. He did release. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful, beautiful release. And he, mm-hmm. he does fly now. And he's I get updates now and again. But he spent the whole winter and he was non-aggressive towards me mm-hmm. the entire winter. He and I had an understanding. Mm-hmm. Whereas let's say another volunteer would go near him. He would hiss in defensive posturing mm-hmm. and do all of that. So it was a connection that I developed with him through that before mm-hmm. actually physically being in the same vicinity. Mm-hmm. So I think it works. It sounds like that's one of your uh, very important tools Absolutely. in running this program. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to be able to have some kind of rapport. You do. You have to connect yeah. with them on their level. And again, let's mm-hmm. go back to that ancient wisdom. So these birds thinking about one thing at a time. So they're focused on one thing only. They don't multitask like Mm -hmm. we do. So when I work with these birds and when Todd works with these birds, the same thing. And when Grace works with these birds, we try to quiet our minds. Mm -hmm. So when we are physically touching them and and treating a wound, we try to be focused on just the one thing that we are doing Mm -hmm. as to not 
overstimulate them. And do you do that by breathing, intentionally breathing? I think in the beginning, I used to be very aware of my breathing. Mm -hmm. And I was very um, um, routine about what my approach would be. Now I just naturally do it. Mm -hmm. It just happens. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing it long enough that... To do that. Yeah. Is there anything that you do for yourself in terms of the difficult part of this job? You talked about, you know, cherishing even helping them cross over and you you talked about some birds are not you know rehabable they're mm-hmm. not going to be able to go back to the wild and you're not here to have a zoo right 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 and so when you, you obviously have this very deep relationship with these animals how do you then recover from that loss it's a very, um, it, it can be very hard. I can tell you that, that there is a lot of loss in what we do. There's a lot of sadness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of damage that we see. Um, over the years, in the beginning, we try to save everything just because we could. And over the years, we've learned what is um, repairable and what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, we no longer have birds come in that have such badly broken wings where we have amputations done to them. Um, we found that birds with amputated wings, they don't remember that they're not fully winged. So they often will, in fight or flight response, react. Again, thinking about one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. It's survival. Something frightens them. They try to fly. They fall. They hit themselves on that side. Mm-hmm. We've seen um, a lot of things like that that have changed us over the years to understand what is is worth um, putting into in trying um, losing them, some of them are harder than others, especially cases that you didn't see coming, you know, you thought mm-hmm. was doing so well. Uh, I have so many losses that I, I think that I have learned over the years to just basically um, say goodbye in a, in a physical way, but understand that they are free on the other side. Mm-hmm. So as long as I visualize them living out or f- flying from us mm-hmm. and being in in their freedom again, it helps. But we are so busy that there's not a lot of time to mourn. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that that's, you know, if I sit back and start to think about it, I can get really sad and go into a deep depression. I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I have too many birds that need me. Yeah. So it's always the next case that bounces me back. So we basically say goodbye when it has to be done and we move on because there really is no time to dwell in anything around here. Do you mourn differently, you and your husband? Do I? Yes. Yes. I think being male and female, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, He, of course, he has his, he's a very sensitive male and he does have his um, favorites and when we lost that hawk I was talking about, that was 29, mm-hmm. it was a good three days for him that he was he was in a deep, dark place. Mm-hmm. With me, um, for her, I was, I was actually very um, relieved for her. She was an old bird. She had done her job. She served her purpose. She had a great life. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, with her, it was sad to say goodbye, but I didn't have that same morning of my loss it mm. was i i felt for her it was a a new life a, a liberation mm-hmm. so I, I guess it just depends but now I, I had started to tell you earlier when we were on our our walk feeding birds how we lost an eagle 
that was devastating to me because um, she was only two and a half years of age. Mm -hmm. It was a mosquito-borne virus that that got her. She got Eastern yeah, Eastern equine encephalitis, Mm -hmm. um, something that we now will be uh, more aware of because it's not as common in this state. You usually see it in horses. Um, West Nile virus has been bad for us for years, but this particular last mm-hmm. season was extra bad. And is that because of the the climate? Probably. And that they can live longer. The mosquitoes were thriving, and I have to say, here in um, our location, mm-hmm. we do have some swamp area around us. Right. Um, we were not being. Um, bitten by mosquitoes in any excessive way that mm-hmm. made us say, uh-oh. But we were getting case after case after case from mm-hmm. all over the state, different birds coming in. And they would die within four to 12 hours, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So many crows, so many blue jays. They're very susceptible. Mm-hmm. Um, so many Cooper's hawks and red-tailed hawks and red-shouldered hawks. And this particular year, it seemed very aggressive, this particular West Nile virus. We were thinking it's mutating. And the other centers were noticing it too, mm-hmm. that these birds were just dropping and it had to do with the mosquitoes obviously Mm -hmm. but when the eagle went down and it happened she was she was gone within 36 hours she was healthy and then she was gone and it was so traumatic and so fast i wasn't ready and of course having her because she was an eagle there are different permits that go along with eagles and when an eagle dies there is an automatic necropsy that must be performed Mm -hmm. even if you know the cause of death Mm -hmm. it must be necropsied with the state and you have a vet who comes in and does we do have we have three different vets that we work with Mm -hmm. but this particular necropsy goes to yukon so it goes Mm -hmm. to the the um, teaching school and this necropsy that when they the test came back it came back positive for triple e and it was not something that we were even going to test for it was one of the um, young girls there during intake she said do you want to test for triple e and i was like uh, she says, yeah, you may as well, because mm. we're t- testing for West Nile anyway. virus. Yeah. May as well. I am so glad she suggested it mm. because it wasn't on my list because we had not really had any reason to suspect we have it here. Now we do. And she is going to be the teacher she was destined to be because of Triple E and her her death. We are now able to use that as a platform to let everybody know it is imperative that you get rid of standing water and make sure that you're not breeding mosquitoes on your own property mm-hmm. and that you put on bug spray. Because for any human that gets sick with Triple E, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty much fatal. It, I think it's something like 6%. Um, of people who get bit by the infected mosquito die within a couple weeks. Mm. And then it's two to three years after you've been infected that you usually come down and die um, from some related conflict from that particular sickness. So it's fatal if you get it. And it's and not something that, that people really are aware of. No, they're not. And when you say bug spray, what do you use? Well, I used to be the natural girl right. here, so I wasn't really worried about um, using DEET. But right. this per- particular season, DEET. I will be using chemicals really? that I'm not accustomed to using. Yep. However, like I said, we didn't have a mosquito problem mm-hmm. here. So I, I don't think I even got one mosquito it bite. On this your radar. It wasn't. Yeah. We have um, something called Dynatraps. They're these um, mosquito repellent kind of things that have this blue light and the the mosquitoes go into this trap and get sucked down by a fan and Mm. we had them around our courtyard just to protect because we knew west nile was so bad Mm. so it was one of our modes Mm. we plant lavender which Mm. is a natural repellent for Mm. mosquitoes Mm -hmm. it's a plant that you don't have to crush 
to have that smell to get rid of mosquitoes that just naturally the smell of lavender gets rid of them, um, as well as catmint. So we plant those kinds of plants around and we really weren't thinking that we had to worry. But when they all started coming in as cases, that's when we started to get nervous. And of course, we um, don't know now, looking back, we didn't have all these birds tested. But I have to say the symptoms that we saw in the eagle were really fast. But we saw so many come in that died within hours that we now suspect there was a lot more triple E. And we were mistaking it for West Nile virus. I see. I see. Yeah, I'm thinking about these these eagles and how majestic they are mm-hmm. and seeing one be to Ill. lose your yeah. eagle it was yeah. devastating it would it devastated everybody in the state that's in this um this network mm-hmm. um other centers that have bald eagles also reached out um mm-hmm. just as as upset and concerned um, because they have their eagles to protect. How do we protect our birds mm-hmm. without putting a bubble over your center, keeping them indoors, which is mm-hmm. not feasible, um, putting screening around aviary structures, which for us, we've tried. We've put screening up on our corvids, so the ravens and the crows. We, mm-hmm. we kind of do that every year as an attempt to keep mosquitoes at bay. It's not 100%, but it helps. But we have wild birds that come in, and they rip the screening down. Sure so do. it's, yeah. it's kind of like a never-ending battle. Um, after we lost the um, eagle to triple E, we actually pulled our other resident bald eagle and put him in a smaller aviary space that was completely screened in mm-hmm. because there was no way I was losing another mm-hmm. one. Um, all it takes is one mosquito. Mm-hmm. So the next natural question some of your listeners might be wondering is, can't you vaccinate against it? Mm-hmm. There are vaccinations for horses for triple um, E. There's vaccinations for West Nile virus. Mm-hmm. It is not proven to be effective in birds, Mm -hmm. especially the corvids, the crows, the ravens, the blue jays. It's ineffective. Mm -hmm. It has not helped. Mm -hmm. Other birds, they can't prove how effective or if it's effective at all. So, yes, this year we plan on vaccinating our birds Mm -hmm. um, in an attempt to give them another extra Mm -hmm. layer of protection, Mm -hmm. something we've never done in the past. And now, of course, the other centers, again, like us, are all also on the same page. We're all going to vaccinate our birds. It's very expensive. Um, there is a vaccination that covers West Nile virus, triple E, and Western equine encephalitis that we're trying. It's not been tr- tried on the birds before, so we don't know if this is going to be damaging. We don't know if this is going to um, kill any of our birds. So we will test some of it on some of the wild cases that come in first, but it just is such an expensive vaccination. Um, it cost for 40 um 40 doses, it cost us $3,008. Yeah. Do you have, is there a vet school at UConn? No. There's Tufts, Tufts, Tufts. University, and Tufts so do Veterinary. They, do you have relationships? We with do. The so if we schools? have, yes, if we have mm-hmm. questions, we have an, a very unusual case, we can bring our birds mm-hmm. right out to Tufts and mm-hmm. they'll take them in and do their magic. Mm-hmm. So that's always nice to have. Mm-hmm. And you, it sounds like you're fully in this network of other rescuers throughout the state of Connecticut. Correct. Do you, I know you can't really leave for very long, but do you, 
Do you uh, get together with them? At- there are um, seminars that happen um, through the Connecticut Wildlife Rehabilitation Association. Mm-hmm. Then there's the national one. Oh, yeah. Um, then this past year, the, one of the um, local nature centers, Roinbrook Nature Center in Canton, Connecticut, had a, um, a rehab seminar, a whole day of different topics. I see. Um, so, yeah, there are ways for us to you get together. Share your yeah. experience. Exactly. And then, of course, with social media now, we can be friends with one another. There are Mm -hmm. things like Rehabber's Corner and there's um, places that you can go and and talk amongst each other to get advice and share information. Like a Facebook group? Yes, yes, Uh yes. And it is helpful. It's, It's nice to have the networking. But like every aspect of anything to do with humans... There are egos involved and there can be cliques in politics. So <laughs> even though we're all in these, this do good and give back mode, it does not mean that there are, there are, you know, that it's a perfect group. Meaning, like, give me an example. There's competition. How, oh, there's competition. Yeah, there can be competition. Yeah, I see. There can be um, people who are, you know, they think they do it better than so-and-so uh, and, you know, things like that. But that's that's just everywhere, I yeah, think. It's that's human. human nature. It's human I nature. so, yeah. It's disappointing because um, we tend to always be from the mindset set of the birds come first. Mm-hmm. So we don't like to get involved with any of the, the behind-the-scene dramas between mm-hmm. different places. We're always like, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> That seems to always have been my motto as well, because I am the last child in my family. So I am the youngest. Uh So I was always the one, why can't we all just get along? (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's for the best, though, to benefit the, the birds that we're all on the same page to help. So our goal is to get everybody to um, work together. Mm. And again, that's why we're doing that rescue transport class for the public. Mm-hmm. So we're teaching public um, people in Connecticut who are interested in learning how to safely rescue mm-hmm. without getting injured and mm-hmm. without further injuring an animal, a okay. dangerous bird, yeah. whether it's a bird of prey, a swan who can break a human arm with a wing slap. Um, a goose, um, who same thing can do a lot of damage with their wings. A, a heron and, or an egret with their spear beaks who can go for your juggler. Oh, so there are ways wow. to learn how to safely mm. be around these birds in a rescue situation and then how to safely put them into whatever sized, appropriate sized carrier and to drive with them to, um, either a center like us, a wildlife rehabilitator mm. or a veterinary hospital, mm-hmm. wherever it is that they're going to safely get that bird help Mm -hmm. and the public has 24 hours to do that once they get something in distress in their possession they have a 24-hour window to find that animal proper licensed help i see i see and that's through a community college or Um, no we we offer the class um usually three times a year the next one is on february 16th it's actually at meg's point nature center so we we go to different venues to offer the actual seminar i want to Yeah, that particular um, class is already full. These classes fill up very fast. I see. We will be announcing our spring date. Our Mm -hmm. spring class we usually do right here at a place called Hope. Mm -hmm. We do it on the deck. We bring out our projector and our our screen and... People get to be around the birds, which is really mm-hmm. nice because, you know, you're you're coming here for that that learning experience, but you get to see these birds as well. Mm. So it's kind of, I like that class the best, the is spring there class. Any, 
Is there any time where you just want to drive into town and sit in a cafe? No. No. I am, like I said, um, this time of year, I'm living in my my jumper. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I am um, doing whatever bird feeding and treatments. And when I have to go out, it's usually for a rescue to the veterinary hospital um, or to the grocery store, which I don't like to do. I don't like going out. Um, I'd much rather stay in my bubble here and do what I'm doing. And that's where this class has been very helpful, too, because getting the public to get involved with transporting and bringing the birds to us keeps me doing what I'm doing, which is imperative. The higher level skill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It saves Mm -hmm. me the time from all that driving around um, and other places as well. These classes, when we get the list of people who are pursuing it and have become what we call first responders for wildlife, Mm -hmm. um, we share their names and contacts with the other places too. Mm -hmm. So wherever they reside, they can cover their area and go to the closest rescue, which is really nice. Yeah, we want it to be that way because the goal again is to get them help when they need it. And since 98%, 98 of the birds that are coming down, and I'm going to say this is probably true for all wildlife, but in my realm, it's birds. Mm-hmm. 98% of the birds that come to us are injured in ways related to us humans. Mm-hmm. So that is, it's, it, it's not acceptable. It's no longer okay to say, let nature take its course. Mm-hmm. We are the problem. I see. So we need to intervene. Mm-hmm. We need to fix the problems that we're creating. So car strikes being number one, yes. there's not much we can do about that. Okay. Unfortunately, we're all out there driving from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. There are roadkill situations all over the place. If you live in an area where you come across roadkill, if you can stop safely to pull it off the road, okay. it's a great way to help another predator from becoming a victim. That, I can imagine that, yep. Also, we try to teach children not to throw their banana peels or their apple cores or the last bite of their sandwich out the window as you're in a vehicle driving mm-hmm. because that little piece of food attracts a critter who might get hit by a car. I now see. it's roadkill. It gets hunted by a predator, and that predator and on is and at on. risk. I see. Yes. Okay. Then there's a lot of... Um, we have a pick it up camp campaign trying to help people understand the damages of littering and leaving fishing line and kite string yes. and balloon ribbon yes. and six pack ring holders and straws. All of those things mm-hmm. caused lots of damage to our wildlife. Mm-hmm. So we talk about ways to lessen those conflicts. Um, rodenticide. That's another biggie. Mm-hmm. People like to get rid of uh, mice and rats. They don't want to see them. They don't want to pick them out of the hap- not the uh, the snap traps mm-hmm. or the glue traps, which are barbaric. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to just get rid of them. So put out the poison. They don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. But what happens then is a predator comes along. Even a domesticated mm-hmm. dog or cat mm-hmm. or a small child can eat that bait. Mm-hmm. Um, domesticated dogs, cats, and other predators will eat the animals that have eaten the poison and right. get secondary poisoning. I see. I see. Some of the poison, some of the companies try to um, impress upon their their um, consumers that, no, this poison is safe. In a small dose, your dog, your cat, your child isn't going to get sick. Mm-hmm. But what they're not telling you is that over time, it's a cumul- cumulative effect. So it builds up within the system. So a bird of prey nowadays, if it's tested for rodenticides, all of them come up positive. They have some level of rodenticide within their system, which is a shame because it means that people are still using this stuff like crazy. It's on the shelves in you know our, our home improvement stores oh, and yeah. our hardware so stores. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's something that we need mm-hmm. to see less of. Um, mm-hmm. There's a new device out called a rat zapper, I think, and it's an elect- electrocution device. And as as mean as that sounds, it's way more humane 
than um, glue traps or rodenticide. Or, you know, for people who don't like the snap traps, those are usually pretty effective. But if they snap in the wrong spot, you might have a live animal. Mm-hmm. So that's not always preferred. Mm-hmm. But there are methods to, to use that will get rid of um, rodents in a more safe and effective way. Mm-hmm. Putting up an owl box is a really, really mm-hmm. nice solution because you may attract a predator to these rodents and, and small mammals that are, are giving you a problem. And um, they will eat a lot of them. So mm-hmm. they can take it. Farmers used to do that all the time. They put up nesting spots oh, and boxes. Smart. Yeah, because they knew the mm-hmm. natural, the most natural rodent control is your predatory bird of prey. Right, right. What about lead? Are you Yes. Lead? In fact, I'm glad you said that. I have a swan right now that has um, a lead level of 55. Anything over 15 is toxic. Mm. Um, he is, uh, was just, uh, the blood work came back on Saturday afternoon. And the vet right now today is trying to get the um, chelation therapy, mm-hmm. which is critical to get as soon as possible because the lead level is so high in the swan. It's, it's amazing he's still alive. Mm-hmm. We are seeing it more in our state with even bald eagles. Um, some of the larger birds of prey are coming down with lead poisoning. It's more commonly seen out west, but Connecticut is now seeing a lot more. New York as well. And is um, that uh, because of pellets? It's It can be a combination of things. Okay. It can be for a bird like the swan mm. in particular. The swan was not shot, so it didn't have scattered lead pellets in its system where over time it became sick. Yeah. Um, this particular swan had ingested lead pellets, and it went into the gizzard of the bird. Mm. The gizzard is where they usually ingest some stones and grit mm-hmm. so they can kind of grind some of the things they're eating and and over time, the lead is what is being ground down. So from lead sinkers to pellets, oh, it can be any of those things mm-hmm. in the system. If it's in the digestion, then it slowly leaches into the system of the bird. He is so sick. Mm-hmm. Usually with birds of prey, when we see it in them, it's because A, they've been shot, or B, they are eating the um, intestines that have been from the hunted deer that have been gutted and left behind. Oh, I see. Um, and it's... So is it is it legal in Connecticut to use I don't know yes. the proper term is yes. lead, lead shot? Yes, lead shot is still legal. Mm-hmm. Um, there are alternatives. There's steel and, of course, there's copper. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I was told by an environmental police officer um, when I asked the very question, well, why do hunters still use lead? Mm-hmm. The simple answer is lead is um, cheaper. It's not much more expensive, though. It's not going to break anyone's bank to buy the alternative. Mm-hmm. But what he said next was what scared me. He said it is a more effective mode of of um, killing in a hunting situation because it it scatters and expands and kills. I don't know how they eat these animals after all that scatters into their system, but because of that widespread is what they're looking for in the lead shot over copper or steel, which doesn't have the same effectiveness to take a large game animal down. Hmm. Yeah. But it should all be outlawed. It should be in, who knows, maybe not in in my lifetime, but perhaps in some future generations, it will be outlawed because we're we're going to eliminate all these animals based off of what we're poisoning our planet with. Yeah, we're poisoning our own wealth. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And imagine like, uh, okay, so if deer are full of lead shot and they're being hunted and the ones that do get away and have it in their systems and people are eating this, you know, um, same with the, the fish, the toxins, the fish are all coming up with, you know, it's, it's not a safe, safe world anymore to eat just anything. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the other problem with a lot of the um, fish-eating birds of prey, like the osprey or the bald eagle. Um, They are getting sick from a lot of toxins now, too. So Mm -hmm. we do see a lot of that. We see habitat destruction as well. People cutting down um, trees or or areas where these birds would normally reside Mm -hmm. or taking down dead standing trees just because they're an eyesore. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of trees should be left, especially if they're not a danger to life and limb of, of a human, uh-huh. um, because so many animals use those those as cavity nesting uh-huh. and food because the bugs that are in them. And I it's a great to leave dead standing if whenever possible. I see. I yeah. see. So do you feel optimistic? <laughs> I do. Now, I mean, there is a lot of negativity in what we do because of what we're seeing in the damages. Yeah. But then for the birds that we fix mm. and actually send back, mm. now that is the the ultimate high. That's is a good to actually day. yes, that is a good day or a good night, depending mm. if it's an owl or a daytime bird. But these birds, to send them home after whatever brought them into us, especially the long term cases, to see them leave us. And go back to being a wild animal. It's what it's all about. So these birds typically do the same thing. We unzip the carrier they're in. They come out. Some of them will stand there and look around, take it all in, and then fly. Some will just be out and go on. They'll fly up to a tree, typically. They'll Mm -hmm. sit on a branch, they'll look around, and they'll fluff up and shake off the human is what we call it. They kind of basically just shake everything out and realign all their feathers, take it all in, and then they go back right to where they they left off. It's Mm -hmm. an amazing feeling. Mm. And even more amazing than that is when you return one and it's reunited with a mate. Oh, my goodness. Those are the things we live for. We do live for that. And we know with every baby bird we're putting back also, Mm -hmm. we know we have helped the population for the future. Mm -hmm. And with every bird we return to its mate, we know that mate is happy again and they've Mm -hmm. reunited and they can create more of themselves. I understand that red tails... often mate for life yes most of these birds do Mm -hmm. they will mate for life if something should happen to a mate they will eventually Mm -hmm. um, move on because it's just natural for them to do so but it does not mean that they don't go through a mourning process some of them will mourn for a whole season Um, some will just move on because another male or female will come into the territory and, Mm -hmm. and the opportunity arises um, but with swans in particular, we find that they will, uh, the mate left behind will often mourn until it dies. And what we tend to do, and we're not a swan center where we do swans primarily, but we do see them now and again. When we get a swan that's an adult that has a mate, we try our best to bring the swan in rehab out to where it came from to see the mate. So they see each other and know they still exist. I see. And Wait if, for me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And if possible, we've tried, and we've not been successful yet, but if possible, try to get the mate to keep them together during the rehab process. Oh. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. It really does. And if a swan in our care dies, we bring it back to where it was from and lay the body out for a while so everybody in the flock and or the mate in particular understands the bird is gone. Otherwise, they just search and look and mourn and and pine away. So it's just the best we can do um, for all of these birds we try. Do you have any any last mm. words uh, for our audience? Mm. Well, 
again, for anyone that has an interest in, in this kind of thing and giving back and helping wildlife rehabilitators, there are plenty of centers in every state. There are plenty of um, rehabilitators per state. Mm-hmm. Um, the centers, of course, um, usually are, let's say, uh, an Audubon center. They're usually run by a, a state Audubon. There okay. are nature centers that um, also have their own funding. But there are rehabilitation centers, such as a place called Hope, mm-hmm. um, that are not funded or are supported by the Friends of or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Look for your state list of rehabilitators, find them and look for, um, in Connecticut, we're listed through the Department of Environmental and Energy Protection. And basically, if you go to their website under Wildlife in Distress, you find a um, a bunch of pages um, with a map and you find each rehabilitator that's licensed in the state by the town they live in and the animal they specialize in. Wow, that's quite a resource. It's a way to go, and most Mm -hmm. people don't know that. So Mm -hmm. when you come across an injured animal of any kind, a wild animal, a lot of people call 911. Nine one one's for emergencies with people. Mm-hmm. So often you get nowhere that way. Mm-hmm. You might call the police. Sometimes they know about places like us. Mm-hmm. Often they do not. So it's not always the way to go. Animal control officers, usually a lot of people call them. Now they are in Connecticut. Um, their job title is to work with domesticated animals. Some of them will extend out to wildlife and have been Mm. so helpful Mm. to places like us, but it's not their job to take care of the wildlife. So that's a mistake a lot of people make. Um, Calling your veterinarian hospital, sometimes they know, sometimes Mm. they don't. It can be a lot of wasted time when you have an animal in distress. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation for anyone is to find your resources prior to being in the situation. So in Connecticut, going on that list Mm -hmm. and through DEEP, printing that list, Mm -hmm. having it, having maybe just one person off that list in your phone. Mm -hmm. So you have somebody to call that can direct you. Um, if it's not their specialty in animal, again, we all network. So I know who does bunnies. I know who does squirrels. I know who does raccoons, deer, all of that. And it really makes a, a difference in the life of the animal that might be in crisis. Um, if for someone looking to get involved in becoming a wildlife rehabilitator, each state has their own method of becoming one. Mm-hmm. Um, in Connecticut, again, it's through the DEEP, Wildlife okay. Division. Mm-hmm. There are um, seminars and classes you take to learn. There's a test you must pass. Mm-hmm. And then again, you've got the basic license and then you expand out. Mm-hmm. So depending on what your specialty will be, then you learn more. I see. Yep. There's always continuing education. There's always seminars and things you can do to enhance your own personal skills. But over time, um, for us personally, we are so busy with what we're doing. We don't always have time to uh, a, go away to another state mm-hmm. for a couple nights and go to whatever seminar, which I'd love to do. Yeah, it's but... not like your neighbor's going to feed the birds, right? right? Exactly. This is, is <laughs> you don't leave food. No, out. <laughs> it's it's quite a process, yes. as you witnessed. Yes, um, we are feeding over two hundred mice in a twenty-four hour period, and that's not all we're feeding. We're feeding the day-old chicks, the fish, mm-hmm. and you know, it just it's a lot to to handle. And manage. And for me personally to go away, I am more concerned about not being here. So it, I don't relax. So I'd much rather stay where I am meant to be doing what I am meant to do. Um, but again, for people who want to get involved, all of these places, even single rehabilitators that are doing a much smaller scale of what, let's say, a place called Hope is doing, mm-hmm. those people need help. 
cleaning cages, mm-hmm. um, running to the vet, picking up medication, getting wishlist, all the mm-hmm. same things that we need, they need. So it's really easy to find somebody and hey, say, I, I have time. I can help you. Um, is there something I can do for you? Mm-hmm. I have a woman that just reached out. I'm so thrilled. She's a, a database consultant and she's reached out to put together our class attendees and our people that only wanted transport already contained. She's making a database. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Of the public who's willing to come out and help in those ways yeah. for driving and rescuing. Uh-huh. And it's by county and town and what areas that they would be That's willing right. to travel to. It'll be in one place. Uh-huh. It'll be so easy Organized. to go. Yes. Yeah, because you don't have time. I just do don't have time. Yes. Yeah. And it's okay. Like that's, that's, my husband would love to go on vacation. He really would. <laughs> but we do have a little, um, cottage up in New Hampshire. And we have t- 22 acres of land in the middle of, um, nowhere. Um, we do sometimes go away for maybe two nights. That's as long as I can handle. Um, we do have again our vice president and some of our core group board members and or um, volunteers who can take care of the feeding schedule. Uh-huh. Um, but again, it's not easy, and I, yeah. I have to do a lot of prep work just to go away. So it's not always it's not always worth it. But for him, I I do do it for him. <laughs> We have to make compromises. That's right. And that is an, another important thing to know also. It, to be a couple running a, an organization like this, mm-hmm. um, you really have to have a strong partnership to be able to pull something like this off because the time constraint and the demands, um, especially on the rehab end of it, um, not only for the rehab, but, you know, doing invoices, setting up programming, um, writing the grants, all of the things that that take away time from spending with your spouse. You really have to know what you're getting into prior to getting into something like this um, with the, the sinkhole of time that it can be. Yeah, it's obvious that this is your life. It's yes. not a little side game. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It has to be 100%. And we both feel very strongly about that. So that's the good news. Um, we do sometimes um, long for our, uh, a date night, you know, mm-hmm. which we'll, we have to plan. Mm-hmm. But we always get that emergency call, you know. <laughs> There's yeah. no such thing as a sip or a glass of wine. It's like two sips in, then oh, the phone wow. rings, you know. But oh it's the way we um, have decided to devote our lives to having purpose. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, we're good with that. And where can people find you so they can learn more and um, participate? Sure. In your, in your Our website project. is www.aplacecalledhoperaptors.com. Okay. Um, that, raptors is a term, it's a Latin word for, um, which means to grab or to seize. And mm-hmm. it covers our diurnal birds of prey. So raptor. R-A-P-T-O-R. Mm-hmm. Um, the Facebook page is just a place called Hope okay. on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And that's a fantastic place to learn more about us because we are more current with Facebook than our website. Okay. We have a wonderful web designer, um, but to to change and alter and do things on our website takes a lot more skill and time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Facebook tends to be a little bit more current yeah, uh, with what's going on. So the website... Uh, the the Facebook page is mm-hmm. a place called Hope. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, it's a beautiful 
website. What's really nice about the actual website um, is on our homepage of the website, we have a link to Facebook. So for people who do oh. not have social media accounts, yeah. which a lot of people don't, oh. um, they can actually go to our Facebook page through our homepage oh, on our website. They don't, and they, be they don't have to be members I on see. Facebook. So I really like that. Um, mm-hmm. It helps people that don't want to, to go the social media route. Mm-hmm. We do have an Instagram account um, with photos. We're not as, um, what? savvy with that but we do try so we do have that access as well and you can uh get through to your instagram from your website as well you know i don't think so i i think it's just it's a place called hope on instagram and i don't think we've linked that yet but we probably should (laughs) i'll have to talk to our web designer to have that happen because i don't think i know how yeah yeah it changes all the time it really does it really does but there are for anyone that's in this area in connecticut um we do offer tours here Mm -hmm. by appointment Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously we're so busy and mm-hmm. sometimes we're out and we do programming. We go travel anywhere within the state of Connecticut mm-hmm. with four birds at a time. It's a great way to learn about each species and learn about simple ways that you can lessen conflicts. It's exciting to be up close and personal, to look into the eyes of these birds, to have your picture taken next to one of these birds. Mm-hmm. We do weddings. We do birthday parties, oh garden clubs. Goodness. We've been to a meditation group before. We do drumming circles here, by the way. We do things in our courtyard. So it's a good um, thing to look on our website when we do have public events. We often have things going on in the warm weather here right in the center of our our courtyard. So we've had drumming circles. We've had flute, Native American flute playing. We've had um, totem animal excuse me, totem animal meditations. We've had yoga classes. We've had hula hooping, of all things. We've had belly dancing. You know, there are things that we do. And if, if there's somebody out there that wants to offer a class here of something unique like that, we're, we're open to that. It's a lot of fun. And you have the space. We have the nice courtyard area. It is. It is. And then you can hear and, and feel the energy of the birds surrounding. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a good place for um, healing, too. We mm-hmm. do have um, some people that don't want to clean, that aren't physically capable of scrubbing aviaries that come out and read to our birds or play an instrument, a soft instrument. I don't mean, you know, like mm-hmm. something loud and crazy, but we have people come out and, and play for our birds or read to our birds mm-hmm. or sing to our birds. So it's a good way for um, birds that are resident birds that are in training to become ambassador birds. Mm -hmm. It's a good way for them to be around humans and understand us a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So we encourage that kind of donation too. Mm -hmm. Donations of time, Mm -hmm. donations of supplies, and of course, donations of money. Mm -hmm. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure learning all about a place called hope and also just your clarity of you know this this idea of where you belong there's just no question in your mind not at all you were meant to be here it started early and you've just kind of followed the the trail i feel for um anybody on a soul path i think that the way i look at it is when it is right the universe provides for you the, the, the mode to do the things that you're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. and puts blocks in your way when it's not right. Mm-hmm. So when you're running into a wall over and over, maybe you just need to turn to the left a little bit or the right a little bit or turn around completely. Mm-hmm. The universe has a way of directing us if we allow it. 
Mm-hmm. And this is where we are today. And mm-hmm. I look forward to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for coming out and oh, interviewing. It's been an absolute thrill for me. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash zestful aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.